We have come to the end of this Why Do We series that we've been focusing on through the month of January. Uh, and let me just give a quick recap of the last four sermons, the last sermons that we've been doing in January. The first one, we talked about why we focus on the study of Scripture. Uh, and we focus on the study of Scripture because it is a divine message given by God, about God, to draw us to God. Then Pastor James, our teaching pastor, talked about why we sing or why we worship through singing. And it's because it is the most appropriate response to God's divine initiative. And then we talked about why we emphasize and why we take the time to pray. And I preached about the fact that prayer is giving us the opportunity to glorify God by showing our total dependence on His good gifts and using prayer to be transformed by His Holy Spirit. Last week, uh, Pastor uh, David Otua, or Patois, he focused on why we go on missions. And as he shared last week, he said that we go on missions so that we can share the gospel with those folks that we encounter on a regular basis who long to be saved by Christ alone. So today, we end our series by looking at why do we focus on fellowship and what does that mean? And looking at it from today's passage, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 to 25, or chapter, yeah, 10, 24 to 25, um, I want to give a bit of context. And leading up to this passage in Hebrews, the author is reminding the reader about a very specific thing, which is the uselessness of sacrifice. Because he's reminding the reader that they are called to come to the altar of God every year with a sacrifice, but that sacrifice of a sheep or a pigeon or whatever is inadequate, wholly inadequate to cover the multitude of sins, which is why they have to keep coming back every year to the altar of God to sacrifice again. But Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was and is the single redeeming act that sanctifies those who proclaim their faith in him. In verse 14, it says this, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And then if you move forward into verse, or up to verse 23, now you see that the author is emphasizing the importance of holding on to a right understanding of Scripture, a right doctrine or a right theology. Is this, this so that our, our, our uh, redemption by Jesus' single act might result in a growing faithfulness to God? So in verse 23, it says this, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope. And he says the confession of our hope is pointing to the Bible. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. So spiritual maturity or, or the faithful following of Christ requires an understanding and a clinging to the Bible. It requires and demands a right doctrine or a right theology, a, a, a correct understanding. And I'm not going to go any deeper than that because we actually talked quite a bit about in our first sermon series, uh, sermon in the series, about the importance of the Bible. And if you'd like to, you can go to the New Church website, go to our uh, Church of the Beloved Wicker Park podcast. You can listen to that particular message about the Bible. But today's passage 
is focusing on the other side of the coin because we understand that spiritual maturity, faithfulness, requires a holding fast to a good theology, a right theology, the, the Bible. But the flip side of that spiritual coin is what we see in verses 24 and 25. See, the, the second ingredient in a faithful formula, a formula of faithfulness, is fellowship. I grow in my faith by clinging to uh, the gospel and by clinging to gathering. I, I grow in my faithfulness by clinging to doctrine and theology and by clinging to fellowship. And this is what we're going to focus on today. So we emphasize fellowship here at Church of the Beloved because we understand that the strengthening of our faithfulness is coming by the walking together in fellowship with a community of Christians. We grow as Christians because we live together in fellowship with Christians. Simply spoken, that's what it is all about, fellowship. So today I'm going to spend the time that we have dissecting what that type of fellowship should look like, what a, what a gospel-centered, spirit-filled fellowship should look like based on this passage that was read today by, by Margaret. And, and, and I want to do that so that we can fully appreciate what it is for us as a church that we need to focus on when it comes to fellowship. What should it look like to live out this type of faithful fellowship so that we can encourage and strengthen each other? how to be gospel-transformed and have a gospel-transformed fellowship and what it should look like. So if you're taking notes, cool. Uh, if you're not, cool. Uh, but there are three hot things I want to, three observations that I want to point out to uh, in this second part of our faith formula. In verses 24 and 25, it explains that the fellowship of Christians, or another way to say it is that the church, the Christian church, is called to consider each other it's called to meet each other, and it's called to remind each other. So we're going to look at what those three things really mean. The first is we are called to consider each other. And if you, diving into that, if you look up the word consider in the Bible, the definition is pretty straightforward. It just means to think carefully about something. So when the author of the book of Hebrews tells us that we are, we are called to consider how to stir up one another to love, and to good works. What he is saying is he's asking the reader, stop, take a second, take a beat, and think about not yourself, but your brother and your sister in Christ. Take a moment to think about and consider their context, to, to consider their communication styles, to consider their passions when it comes to your brother and sister in Christ. Uh, I should explain, I have a, a day job, I work in the software industry, and I have actually two bosses. Uh, one is a friend of mine that, uh, uh, or acquaintance I've known for over 20 years. Uh, I've worked with him in other instances. And the other boss I have is the founder, the founder's son. Two very different people. And whenever I, I, I have to approach either of them with an issue or a problem, I will stop. And I will think about, okay, what is the best way for me to present the issue that I have to present to either of them. You know, for one of them, 
I will stop and I'll think about every possible scenario that might be in, uh, involved in this issue, every potential resolution and present it so that he can select which one makes the most sense to move forward with. And for the other one, I grab a cup of coffee, I sit down in his office and let the verbal diarrhea flow because that's what he does with me. Just, we just talk and talk and talk until we come to a resolution together. And I mention this because ultimately these two individuals, I come in considering how I'm going to approach both of them with regards to how they communicate, what are their passions, what is their personality, what is their preferred method of working things out. Because when we are called to consider each other, consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works, the author is ultimately explaining this. One size does not fit all. Because what we are called to do and what we need to understand is that we need to take the time here to get to know our brothers and sisters, to understand that there are different ways to excite each other, to inspire each other. As I was preparing for today, I was thinking about the different individuals that I've come to know over the past year and a half as Suzette and I have attended Church of the Beloved. And as I think about, for example, Diana, who is our prayer team lead, and I I think about how do I excite her? How would I get her so pumped up? And I think the best way, and if I'm wrong, I'm sorry, but I think the best way is to say, come up to you, Diana, and say, you know what, I think we need to pray about that. And when I do that, I feel like, yes, you you would be excited about it. Um, if I were to uh, want to inspire or incite uh, Claudia, I think the best way for me to do it is to say, you know what, Claudia, I think we need to bring your dogs into the picture somehow and get her excited about that. If if I were to try to excite or incite Joanne, who is our deaconess in training, uh, I think the best way for me to get her pumped up is to find some way to incorporate slack and for those of you who don't know, Slack is an work, uh, online workflow management tool that she absolutely is ridiculously in love with. But I would have to find a way to incorporate Slack into how we're going to advance the gospel and use it to plan a strategy for the church to grow. See, what it comes is the act of fellowship in the church is not going to look the same for every single one of us. It is going to look different for each of us, but the end result is going to look really similar for all of us because we're called together to encourage one another. See, the the act of fellowship in the church of the beloved is the careful and thoughtful consideration of each individual Christian sibling here in this place. How can we encourage each other to grow? How can we encourage each other to just desire and cling to our relationship with God? If I were to consider more examples, I think one way for us to, to understand uh, what that looks like is uh, if, if it's deciding to make a phone call instead of a text. You know, if you're calling somebody like, like Leroy, who I don't think even knows how to do a text message, he not, but he loves getting phone calls. It's deciding that, you know what, I'm going to go to the cafe to study even though I haven't been in school for 30 years. Uh, Because this is the way we have so many people who are students, and this is the way for us to encourage one another when it comes to loving God, exciting each other to love God more, inciting each other to, to love the body of Christ as Christ loves us. This is how we encourage each other to live out the gospel here in Wicker Park and beyond. And this is what fellowship is intended 
to look like at the church of the beloved, especially here in Wicker Park. So we are called to also, the second aspect of fellowship, as seen in verse 25, is not neglect meeting together. This is the habit of some, but we are called to not neglect so that we can encourage one another. So the act of fellowship at the Church of the Beloved intends to, to not take the gathering together lightly. Because this is the place where we are called to encourage one another in each other's journey in faithfulness. There's a, actually it's a little bit of a tangent. We made a decision uh, when I took on the role of campus pastor uh, uh, that, and some of you have heard this story already, that we are never going to close the doors of our church on a Sunday, ever. Part of the reason is this, because we are never going to neglect gathering together, as is the habit of some. This is nothing against the downtown campus and not downtown not meeting, but this place will never be closed on Sunday because we understand this is the place where we gather together to encourage one another. But here's the thing, I have a, I have a former Sunday school student of mine, um, and she, I remember she came up to me just totally exasperated and totally just, just frustrated. She said, church is for extroverts. And as a, she's just an undoubted introvert, and she was just so, she just hated spending time with people because church just drained her. She had to be so open and happy and engaging, but in her heart, she wants to draw close to God. But she wants to draw close to God by sitting behind her laptop and just watching sermons online. She would much rather be in her own world than in the world. Because it drains her. And all I could tell her was, yeah, I know. It is, it is so hard for many. And here's the thing. I, I believe... I believe that the fellowship of believers, the church, is intended to be an opportunity for God's grace to be experienced by all who gather. I, I know that the gathering of the godly is intended to be an, an opportunity to, for divinely inspired instruction in the truth of the gospel to be preached. And the community of Christians is absolutely intended to be a place where we are encouraged and where we are inspired to be more Christ-like, but even through suffering, unfortunately, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's draining. And I think that unfortunately this is the case because oftentimes the importance of gathering as a church, as a, as a fellowship, as a community of brothers and sisters in Christ is often practiced without taking into consideration or balancing that first point that I just made is that we are supposed to gather, absolutely. We're supposed to encourage, absolutely. But we're supposed to be doing it by considering each other, and we don't. Oftentimes, the process of gathering together, we, we kind of forget one size doesn't fit all. We have, um, we have a, a member of our church body she has not been able to be a part of our services for many months now. And it's because of some physical issues that she's dealing with. And I love the story. I, I heard this uh, from our small group leaders. Uh, they, the small group decided, you know what? 
we're not going to forget this one sister in Christ. So they decided we're going to her. We're going to spend our time. They can't do it every week, but we're going to actually go to her house and gather together as a fellowship of believers to encourage her. So they decided that this fellowship of believers needed to consider this one believer, and they brought the fellowship to her. This morning, <clears throat> my wife uh, reached out to another member of our church who is currently suffering from pneumonia, and she's not able to join us today, but decided, I'm going to go visit her. I'm going to make sure that this one believer has not felt like she's outside the community of believers. I know others have reached out to her as well. See, this is the church. This is what I, I, I love that, you know, there are people in our church who, who live out exactly what Paul intended in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 and 4. He said, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And let each of you not only to his, look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You see the call to not neglect meeting together in fellowship with each other in the presence of Jesus. It absolutely needs to consider the individual, the brothers and sisters in Christ here. Because this is how God designed it. This is what part, was part of his plan from the beginning. His plan is to use the church to encourage one another, to, to stir up each other to love and good works. The, see, the gathering together at church is not something we do merely as an act of discipline. It is absolutely an act of devotion to our God, to our Father in heaven. It's an act of devotion to the creatures that our Father in heaven, our dad, loves the ones that God loves so much that, that he sent his son who emptied himself by taking the form of those that he created in his image so that we might receive the gift of redemption. This is why we meet together. This is why we encourage each other together. <clears throat> My wife and I, and, uh, and I apologize to her today, you're, you're going to be in a lot of examples. I didn't, I didn't even think about it. Sorry. Uh, but my wife and I, we actually haven't taken a real vacation in a long, long time. It's been a few years. Uh, most of the time when I take uh, paid leave uh, or PTO, I, I, I do it to go to Zambia uh, to work with the orphans and widows that are there and do a lot of that. I think the last vacation that I can recall uh, we decided that we were going to go take a couple days for New Year's. We lived in San Francisco. We're driving up to Napa, and we're going to celebrate New Year's in wine country. So we're all excited about it. But what we ended up doing was we went to KFC, got a bucket of chicken, went to the hotel, watched the ball drop at 9 o'clock, and we're in bed by 9.10 because we figured we did the New York New Year's, so we're done. Um, but every once in a while, we will have times where we're dreaming about, okay, we should take a vacation. And so we'll pull out our calendars. And the first two questions that we ask ourselves as we're looking at our calendar is, is there anything going on at church? Is there anything going on in small group? And I realize that for some of you, this sounds a little excessive, a little extra, a little extreme. But here's the thing. This is what we understand the gospel telling us, is that there is an importance to gathering together. There is absolutely a necessity for Suzette and I to be in this place, not only to be encouraged by all of you and looking out here, I am, but for us to hopefully be an encouragement to you, to be here on this Sunday so that we can say, hey, we are part of your family and we prioritize you as part of our life. Now, don't get me wrong, please. I am not saying that you can never go away on a Sunday. 
attendance to a service is not mandatory. We have taken time away from the congregation on Sundays in the past. That's not it. All I'm asking is take it into consideration. And one of the things that we've decided to do when we do have to leave and be away or when I have to be away on a Sunday is that we still never miss church. Um, it doesn't matter what country I'm in, whether it's India or Ireland, Australia or New Zealand or you know, the one exception was Iceland because we tried to go to church in Iceland. We were actually excited about it, but it was the only place where we've ever been to that had to cancel church because of weather. Um, because the snowstorms were so bad, there was no way anyone could actually get to the church. But other than that, we always go. Because we realize that the days that we've come to church, when new people arrive, the encouragement we receive has been awesome. And, and, and I want to, and Suzanne and I want to be that kind of encouragement when we go into another church, to another place, whether it's here locally or internationally, we are all part of the body of Christ, and we are all call, called to, to gather together, to not neglect it, because this is how we encourage one another in our growth and our faithfulness as Christians. So I, I need to, having said that, take a little bit of a tangent, because there's, a, there's kind of an elephant in the room, um, and that's the idea of membership in the church. Because we are all part of the universal body of Christ, and I agree with that 100%, but there's this also this concept of membership. And it's even more pronounced because many people today are not here because they are actually attending uh, the members or covenant members retreat uh, in the suburbs. I actually don't even know. It was in McDonald land or McDonald University, no, Burger, whatever. It was far away, and uh, we gathered together there, and, and it was only for members. And so I think I... You know, we, when we prepared for today's sermon series, uh, we thought, should we focus on membership? And the decision was no. That's not what Hebrews 10 is actually speaking to, but I don't want to ignore it either because it is part of the story. So if you'll allow me uh, a little bit of a tangent <clears throat> to talk about membership. And, and the first thing I want to do is this. I want to take that word away because I don't think it's the right word, at least for those who speak English. Membership is not the word that really describes what we're trying to do with regards to our co uh, connection with each other, our, our covenant relationship with each other. Because in English, when you use the term member, unfortunately, it conjures images of things like a Costco membership or a Wicker Park Athletic Club or a class pass or something like that. It's, it's, it's something kind of... Uh, unusual, you know, you pay for it and you get some benefits as a result of it. That's not what we speak of when we talk about being a member, a covenant member of Church of the Beloved. The right word, the better way to see it and understand it is that for the Christian church, membership is a public proclamation of citizenship in the kingdom of God. And it's a public proclamation of citizenship affirmed by and made at a local embassy of Christ. You see, the church is an embassy. We are citizens of God's kingdom. We are in a foreign land. This is not our home. And the church is our embassy. And this is where our citizenship is proclaimed and affirmed. And that citizenship 
is not given to just anyone. Anyone who's gone through an immigration process understands there are rigorous uh, hoops to jump through and requirements to understand. And, and, and ultimately, that citizenship process is not given to everyone. It's given to those who are affirmed and verified by the ambassador in charge of that embassy and their representatives. And once you are uh, affirmed in your citizenship in your embassy, you don't just join an embassy, you submit to the authority of that embassy, of that local embassy, because that local embassy's authority has been ascribed by the king who established that embassy there. So in my travels, I've had to, on occasion, stop by, check in with my local U.S. embassy, uh, mainly because you know, I, I was in places sometimes where in case of emergency, they would have to find me right away, so I would have to check in there. And it wasn't simply a process of waltzing in. I would have to make an appointment. I'd have to bring my documentation to prove that I am a citizen uh, of the U.S. and give them my information. And once I had been affirmed and confirmed as a citizen, I would have to then submit to the rules that were established in that place, in that embassy, and enforced by the ambassador of that embassy. But at the same time, I was afforded all the rights and benefits of citizenship as affirmed by that embassy. So, so entering into a covenant relationship with the Church of the Beloved is when we say, it's your opportunity to say, I am the citizen of the kingdom of God. But this is being affirmed by my local embassy. And I will submit to the authority given by God to that local embassy. That's what a covenant relationship is intended to be. And there are other scriptural reasons for, for publicly becoming part of a church body, publicly becoming part of that covenant commitment with the church. I'm not going to go into them right now, but, but I do want to talk about one thing. And, and this may be unique, I don't think it is, to Wicker Park. Uh, it's something that I had to struggle with myself many years ago. But it, it, it's, a, uh, it's a point of contention. And I don't, I don't want to sweep it under the rug. I want to talk about it publicly if we can, which is a, the idea of baptism. Um, see, at Church of the Beloved, membership requires a full immersion baptism. And the full immersion baptism, if you don't know what it is, is being fully dunked in water. And, and I will tell you that as a, it, it's a beautiful representation of your old life being washed away by the blood of the Lamb and resurrecting when being raised up with Christ as a new creation. I think it's awesome. And the Baptist, as a, as a church, we believe this is the best way to publicly proclaim your faith in Christ as your Savior. But I know and I get that there are many here for whom this is not their baptism experience or tradition. It was different. So the issue of baptism, whether that's the best way or the most beautiful way, it's not the issue. Really, the issue is I don't want to get re-baptized. I don't want that to happen, have to happen again. And I, and I have to say that I grew up in a, in a Presbyterian tradition, um, which means that I was sprinkled uh, as a baby when I was baptized. And then later as a teenager, I was presented before the congregation and affirmed vocally my faith in Christ as Lord and Savior. Um, so back in my old church in San Francisco, when I was told that in order to become a member of their church, of that church, I had to be rebaptized. I had to be dunked in water. I, I paused. 
because it didn't sit right with me. I, I, didn't, I didn't have, at the time, the, the knowledge or the understanding of why there, the argument against such a thing. But I knew that I, it didn't feel comfortable. See, the thing is, I understand and I get that the ritual of baptism is a beautiful one, but it's not the thing that saves me. It's not salvific. It, it, it is a public, beautiful proclamation of my faith, but, but it doesn't redeem me. It, it is just a ritual, but being asked to do it again, it felt wrong. But this is my decision, what I ended up thinking through. And it's, I'm not suggesting it for anyone else here. But the realization for me was this. I decided that I would submit to the authority that God had placed in my life so that I could be used by God to serve my family, my church. See, the church or the fellowship of believers that I belong to, I did not want to neglect meeting with them. The family of Christians that I believe God had called me to stir up to love and good works, I wanted to make a covenant with that body, with that group of brothers and sisters. Now, I didn't want this one non-salvific act for me to be a barrier from serving my embassy from being a part of this family, becoming a leader and elder in that church. So my mom disowned me as a result. My father called me a heretic as a result. But I submitted to the authority of my local embassy. And, and I believe that this form of baptism absolutely is a beautiful way to, to publicly proclaim my faith. But here's the, here's the thing. This decision on my part uh, to be rebaptized, to give in to the authority around me, has brought me, as a result, so much more joy, so much more growth, so much more encouragement. My mother and father have come around and they're okay with it now. It allowed me to not only proclaim my citizenship as a kingdom citizen of a kingdom of God citizen, uh, as affirmed by my local assembly, but it allowed me the opportunity to encourage that local assembly as well. So I, anyway, I I've, I didn't want to ignore that elephant in the room. I think for some of you, not everyone, and for those of you who for whom this does not apply, thank you for listening to me, but I, I really believe that this is something that there are a lot of folks that have come up to me and has, have an issue with, and I think it was important for us to talk about. But that's a side trip. Let's get back to today's passage in verse 25. Uh, at the end of the verse 25, we look at the third observation and the last aspect of this faith formula. In the end of verse 25, it says this, all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, the goal of fellowship is to consider each other. The desire of fellowship is to meet with each other to, be, to encourage. And finally, we are called to remind each other that we are living for something so much more. You see, as citizens of the kingdom of God, 
but by the way, um, you may have heard the term upside down kingdom when referencing heaven or the kingdom of God. And for those of you who are not familiar with the term, the upside down kingdom is specifically referring to the fact that the priorities of the world, whether it's love, power, whatever, uh, well, not love, uh, power and money, those things in the kingdom of God are flipped around and totally turned upside down. And so therefore, we are citizens of the coming upside down kingdom. And as citizens of that kingdom, living in this foreign land right now, we are submitting to our local embassy and waiting for the day when we get to go back home. The goal of fellowship is to remind each other that one day we are going to spend eternity with Jesus in heaven. Revelations 10.4 describes heaven this way. He's going to wipe away all, every tear from their eyes, and just death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And this is what fellowship is intend, intended to remind each of us of. A lifetime ago, I feel like, I used to be a social worker. And as a social worker, I used to work in a, a special unit, uh, in foster care. And it was a, a unit that worked only with severely abused and disturbed children. Basically, I was uh, I managed a caseload of the high-profile media cases, and I would have to manage those. And my service area included Cook County and Lake County. So I was in my car a lot. I drove all over the place. And there were times where after leaving a foster home, I would just sit in my car and go, God, why? See, I would be so drained because my job required me to mitigate issue after issue, crisis after crisis. And I would often ask myself, why am I starting this? Why am I continuing to work in this field? Why? It's just, I don't see the benefit of this. I'm just putting band-aids on an issue. But there's one day, uh, there are actually a few others, but there's one day that's forever burned in my memory. And it's the one day that I remember where I was able to witness the adoption of a young girl who had been in foster care since birth until the age of 13 when she finally got adopted. I mean, this woman, this young girl at the time, I guess she's a woman now, uh, but she was in three failed adoptions. One, it was horrible. She was taken with this family, with her, <coughs> excuse me, her brother, flown to Germany to be finalized uh, with the adoption process, and then the parents put the kids back on the plane and ship them back on their own, saying, you know what, we changed our mind. Thirteen years of rejection. And then finally, on this day, I could look at her and her adoptive mother and say, today is different. Because today is a day that you're going to be with your forever family. The mom who has chosen you and loves you she is your forever mom. And I, I, that day in my memory, is, I, I can see it vividly. Um, the two of them sitting across from me. Just a big smile. It was a bittersweet time because that adoption meant that I no longer needed to be in their home anymore. So I would not see them again. But I would not have to see them again. They didn't need our intervention anymore. It reminded me of why I was a social worker at the time. 
See, the, the fellowship of believers, the gathering of the community of Christ, it is intended to remind each of us here, everyone, that we are to live lives of reckless love for God. Because we're waiting for the day when our dad is going to come take us home. The day that our standing as the adopted children of God will come to completion. The day we will enter into our eternal home with our forever family and with our forever father. See, the Church of the Beloved is an imperfect embassy. But it is a place where we are trying to strive to create a place of gospel-transformed, spirit-filled fellowship with one another. Uh, the Church of the Beloved strives to create a place where we as a family of Christians, through our church, are, are considering each other as we stir up each other to acts of love and good works. The Church of the Beloved strives to be a place where we're not going to neglect or minimize the importance of meeting together so that we can encourage each other to grow in our faithfulness, in our relationship with God. Ultimately, the Church of the Beloved strives to be a place where our act of fellowship will remind each other that we're heading to our eternal home, not just being here. We're in an, our, a foreign place, but we're in our local embassy waiting to go home, waiting to come back to the upside-down kingdom, waiting to be with our forever Father. Will you pray with me as we close?